Vandal, a podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Located in Elmira, New York, the small city where Mark Twain was married, buried, and wrote most of his most famous works, the Center is dedicated to supporting and promoting scholarship on Twain's life, work, and legacy. I'm Matt Siebel, resident scholar at the Center and editor of MarkTwainStudies.org, where you can find resources for teachers, students, hobbyists, and researchers. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Susan K. Harris, Emerita Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Kansas. Dr. Harris has written extensively on women novelists of the 19th century, on cultures of imperialism, on sentimentalism and domesticity. Through it all, she has remained a prominent voice in Twain studies, publishing her first book, Mark Twain's Escape from Time, in 1982. The Courtship of Olivia Langdon and Mark Twain, published in 1996, remains the definitive work on Clemens's complicated but often heartwarming domestic life. Along with Linda Morris and Laura Skandera Trombley, Dr. Harris has been central to debunking the once popular myths that Twain was silent about gender and regressive about women's rights. Today we're talking about her most recent book, Mark Twain, The World, and Me, Following the Equator, Then and Now, published by University of Alabama Press earlier this year. The book is a series of loosely connected essays inspired by Twain's 1897 travel book, Following the Equator, based upon the international lecture tour he undertook in 1895. But as we discuss, this is not simply a work of historicism, but also integrates Dr. Harris's reflection upon her own travels in the countries Twain visited and upon her life, much of it spent reading and studying Twain. I hope you enjoy. Well, I'm here with uh, Susan K. Harris, the author of Mark Twain, The World and Me, Following the Equator, Then and Now. Uh, And I want to start today, Susan, by uh, recognizing that this book is something of a departure for you. It's a critical examination of Twain's Following the Equator, uh, which is territory that you have a lot of experience with. Uh, but it's also a travel book in its own right, as well as a bit of a memoir and a reflection on your relationship with Twain's works throughout your career. It is thus clearly a fusion of both professional work and uh, private life. Uh, and so I wanted to start by asking what inclined you to undertake such a project? Um, I, I started this project with very different expectations. I had published a book in 2011 called God's Arbiters, Americans and the Philippines. And that book took Mark Twain and put him in the center of the debates about whether or not the U.S. should annex the Philippine archipelago. And at the end of that book, I, I had thoroughly explored Twain's anti-imperialism at the turn into the 20th century. But at the same time, it was left with the question, how did he get there? Because it's not obvious that Twain would come out being an anti-imperialist. 
the younger Twain, I think, would have supported this move wholeheartedly. So the question was, what, what caused the turn for him? And I had a hunch that this tour around the world. So for readers, for, for auditors who haven't read Following the Equator, it's Twain's last travelogue. It's published in 1897, and it's the record of a trip a lecture tour that he took that took him basically through the British Empire. He, the big places he visited were Australia, New Zealand, India, and South Africa, with some minor places in between. And so for me, I, I had a feeling that the answer to my question lay in that tour around the world. Because prior to that, Twain was a very well-traveled man, but only in the United States and Europe. And this was different. This was really different. So I decided to follow Twain's path. And over about 15 months, I went, spent a month each in Australasia, India, and South Africa. And my original intention was to do a pretty routine academic research project, go to libraries, read about Twain in newspapers, in people's records of his, his lectures. But after I got to Australia, I thought, I don't really want to spend all my time in libraries, especially since a lot of very good Twain scholars had already done a lot of that legwork. So instead of writing about what people said about Twain in 1896 during the tour, I decided to pick up on what Twain said about the people and the places, and then to see how that compared with my own impression some 150 years later, because a surprising amount of things are similar, but we are very different people. So as this book grew, it went from being a pretty conventional academic research project to being exactly that fusion of travelogue memoir. And I never found the word for it, survey of current events or issues then and now that, as you said, the book is today. So that's really the way the book originated. Um, and, and so the way it's written, it is a series of interlocking essays. It's not a book with a core argument. Different essays, they can be read standalone. Um, and they have three main com components. The first is Twain, his writing, and his cultural environment. The second is me, my personal background and scholarly methods. Because as I was writing, I realized that I often disagreed with Twain, that we really had different viewpoints. And I thought, well, it might be interesting to bring that into the whole landscape, make me as an active partner instead of the silent scholar. 
And the third part is world. It's the cultural and historical events, first of Twain's time, but also of ours. And each essay explores how these elements come together over time. Uh, they focus on India, Australia, and South Africa, and they cover roughly three themes. There's religion in India, there's indigenous peoples in Australia, and there's race and gender in South Africa. Except there's one chapter on wild animal conservation that takes place in both Australia and South Africa, and it's about ecotourism. Okay, so that's how the book came about. There's something I find incredibly uh, satisfying about a scholar openly including their own biography in a work like this. Uh, I feel there's there's part of me that feels that it's unfortunate that we tend away from the personal and tend away from the first person narrative in academic works, while at the same time always acknowledging and always encouraging our students to be aware of the impossibility of eliminating your interests, your perspective, your experiences, your biases, right? That this is something that we are, you know, as, as professors, are, are sort of over-determined about when we're asking our students to evaluate literary and critical works. And then in our own scholarship, we lift up this elusive, objective voice uh, that we know to be largely delusional. <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, I, I, you know, every, I think, I think I believed I could be objective when I started out in this profession. But as you write, you understand, and partly that's the fusion of teaching writing, as we all do, and writing yourself. And you realize you can't shape a sentence without a point of view. And the point of view is you. Yes. So why pretend you're not there? In fact, you're the invisible hand behind everything. Yeah. And being, being more open and honest about who, who, who is bringing that perspective to this work, right, to this scholarship, I find uh, very enticing. Right. Uh, and so I, I really appreciated that. And I realized that this project took on a kind of life of it own, its own and sort of evolved in a number of different directions. But I wanted to go back to that first or that sort of originary question, that genesis, which I think is is a big question for Twain studies about why Twain became an anti-imperialist. It's clearly something that has it has driven your work, both this book and the preceding book, to to a degree. And so, I wondered if you came away with more clarity, if not an answer, uh, about that somewhat unexpected turn, as you as you said. Yeah, I, I I always have trouble answering that question because the answer is yes and no. Yes, I do think the trip educated him, but not immediately. You don't see it. That's one of the reasons that I took the trip myself. I had poured over both editions. There was a British edition 
as well as an American edition of Following the Equator. I had been to the Berkeley Mark Twain papers, read every diary, letter, whatever that I could find, looking for a discussion of imperialism and not finding it. Just fragments, hints, and inconsistent hints. So I think the way that the trip did, let's say, convert him was, first of all, and this is something you and I have talked about before, Twain was an ultra-sensitive human being. Whether it was natural, born with him, or had to do with some of the traumas of his childhood, which were not unlike the trauma of many people underwent during that period, or even today. But he was a hypersensitive kid. And he was in many ways a hypersensitive adult. And he also, for all the disputes there are about this, he kind of had an eye out for peoples who had been unfairly treated by other powers. So when you look at empire, what you look at is a dominant power, usually technologically very advanced, coming in and decimating a native population and subjugating, often very cruelly, those who are left. And he saw this happening over and over again. I mean, he was extremely interested in the process and horrified by the process in Australia, encouraged by the Maori resistance in New Zealand and the fact that they actually, unlike the Aborigines in Australia, the Maoris got a treaty with Queen Victoria that became the basis for all kinds of legal decisions. Um, and, and so Maoris were represented in, in Parliament when he was coming through, which certainly Aborigines were not. He saw, he actually was very much in favor of the British in India, and yet, at the same time, he saw acts of wanton cruelty and prejudice that reminded him of the pre-Civil War South in which he grew up. So I think it was all of these coming together and, it, and the news coming out of the Philippines about the Americans' efforts to subjugate the Filipinos whose country they had invaded on false pre pretenses. They had lied to the Filipinos about their intentions. I think that all came together later, not when he was writing Following the Equator, but in the years and subsequent reading that he had afterwards, between 97, when Following the Equator was first published, and 1900, when the Americans annexed the Philippines. 
you could probably predict where I might go next because it's, as you said, it's something we've talked about before, but it does beg the question, how could somebody, a question that you raised several times in the book, how could somebody who, if not a champion of indigenous peoples, certainly somebody who was sensitive, uh, to use your word, the, the sensitive to the plight of native peoples in various places around the world, be so insensitive, at least at times throughout his career, to the plight of Native Americans. Right? To what extent do you did you come to understand how Twain could fail to make that analogy, as he so clearly does in on many occasions? Yeah. So I know because we both read it. Everybody's read it at this point. Carrie Driscoll's. What's the title? Um, Mark, Mark Twain, Mark. The Indians has been, a, which came out about three years ago, and it's been a huge influence on everybody because that's precisely the question she tackled, and she did it in depth, very, very well. Um, and and one of the things that Carrie says in that book is that there was a story in Twain's family that came down from his grandmother or great-grandmother's time about surviving a horrific Indian attack. And she hypothesizes that, that that family trauma, which came down as a narrative, was at the basis of Twain's pretty unrelenting, uh, at least verbal, attack on the Native. American population. I think that's probably part of it, but I do think that Twain also first, I think, certainly by 1897, I think he probably had a better sense of Americans, white Americans' transgressions against the Native American population. And I wonder about his intentions. I think that rather than using personal trauma as thinking of that as a motive, to think of Twain as a writer, a very canny writer who has an extraordinary grasp of his entire culture's many, many narratives and many, many tropes. And a trope being a kind of narrative that everybody possesses and that you can easily, because everybody knows the basic framework, you know, think of the solitary individual up against odds, the kind of Natty Bumpo character that we see played out over and over again, say, in war movies. Okay. So he understands tropes like that as they exist within a particular culture, our culture, and he uses them. And this is a trope of us against them. Americans don't like, I doubt anybody likes, being made conscious of their own transgressions. We certainly see that today in the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements. 
people are very resistant to coming to grips with it. And I think Twain knew that. And he was a popular writer and always in the back of his mind. He was thinking about, he needed money. This is how he supported himself. So he was writing into these tropes. But he was freed from that, knowing his major audience was going to be the Americans and the British. He was freed from that when he was writing about Australian Aborigines. He was not freed from that when he was writing about India because he knew the book would be published in England and the English weren't going to like it if he threw the transgressions of the empire into their face. So I, I think it's so much, it's so complicated all around. But I think that's part of the story that, that we need to consider as we're juggling all these factors. The, the notion of Twain's sensitivity and, and perhaps sometimes cynicism when it comes to the tropes of American culture and the appeal of those tropes in any given moment uh, has to be a factor here. And I think we have to admit that even the argument you refer to from Carrie Driscoll's book, that idea of an Indian attack upon one's ancestors that you know, sort of has this generational trauma associated with it is a trope itself that reappears over and over again in American literature and culture. Absolutely. And it probably occurs as much in other cultures. I mean, every culture has its inherited tropes because that's what you make stories from. Right. Every culture has stories about it, itself, from origin stories right on up. And, and some kind of us against them, especially in cultures that, like ours, are based on very much up dualistic way of thinking about things. Things are black or white. They are not gray. You are good or you are bad. You are not in between. Uh, you are male or you are female. You are not in between. That's the way our culture teaches us to think. Us against them is going to play right in there. On the other hand, you show within this very book that Twain is troubled by that dualism, it, particularly when it comes to gender. I, I think your, your chapter on what we might call trans narratives in our own time is, is very powerful for revealing the extent to which Twain is trying to actively interrogate gender norms uh, at, a, you know, at a time when that was not part of the common, uh, you know, tropology. Right? Uh, and so, and also the way that he's leveraging sentimentality in unexpected ways. So again, using very familiar, comfortable, resilient uh, aesthetics, but doing so in support of unpopular politics. And so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that tension, I think, that exists within Twain's studies uh, and within his own career between, on the one hand, being very sensitive to what's going to sell, what's going to be market marketable, right? What's going to keep him, uh, you know, popular, but also 
recognizing the resilient appeal of things which are transgressive, which are unconventional, right, which are contrarian. I think that's why he became a literary literary comedian. Because if you think about what comedians do, especially stand-up comedians, it's precisely to explode, to transgress. And we respond by laughing. We laugh because we don't know what else to do with it. But it plants ideas in our heads. And Twain used that very, very well. Exactly as he used modes like sentimentality or satire, he's making a point by using these frameworks that we are so very accustomed to. And in terms of the modes like sentimentality, which kind of put us in a receptive frame of mind to begin to entertain notions that we might not otherwise entertain. So I I think he's doing that. He does it with gender. And he does it with a lot of things. But I want to go back to your point about that third chapter Section one, the chapters in three sections, seemingly unrelated, but hopefully pulled together by the end. In the first section, what I'm doing is looking at Twain's writings about gender and gender fluidity alongside better known writings about racial fluidity and pointing out his equal interest in both and that in this very black-white world of the late 19th century. And I could go on for hours about why I think it was a black-white world. Um, he He is very interested in what lies between. So it was very clear to Americans that there was a big difference between African Americans and people from Africa because of the blending. And this was all part of the discourse of race in the late 19th century on all sides of the spectrum. And people like W.E.B. Du Bois actually tried to get a third race, not just black, but white, but and white, but colored, what we would call, or what the South Africans call colored, in between people who were racially mixed. But he couldn't, he and the other people who were interested, they couldn't get it apart. But Twain makes it very clear that people like this exist. The standard text that everybody looks at, maybe obsessively these days, is Puddinhead Wilson, where your black characters look white and your white characters are actually actually black, except nobody can tell. So are they or aren't they? Who knows? Uh, And there's all this play about clothing and some of the characters dress up as the opposite sex. I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole burlesque. If you look at it, it's a tragedy, but it's a burlesque tragedy. 
because everybody is pretending to be something they aren't, or else they are assuming that they are one thing and an act in actuality. But the actuality, as Twain says, is legal, not biological. But they so legally they are something other than what they think they are. So these are areas that Twain is extremely interested in. And and that's transgressive. But I think there was enough discourse about race that he could call this the tragedy of Puddinghead Wilson rather than the burlesque. There wasn't all that much conversation about gender fluidity. So he did it as comedy. I, I think that your point about the appeal of comedy for Twain is an incredibly powerful one. And I, I think the appeal of comedy is always changing for Twain. I almost always think back to the, you know, the moment where he expresses to his family that he's going to pursue a career as a comic writer. And in that very same letter, he threatens to commit suicide. And he, he says, you know, in no uncertain terms, this is, this is not an honorable profession. I don't have any regard or admiration for people in this profession. I just happen to be good at it. He's good at it. And if there was yeah. honor in it before, there certainly was after, you know, right. well, he elevated it. He, yeah. he and he, yeah, by, by a few decades later, he's he's able to say something like against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. And so he does find using comedy as a way to sort of sneak transgression into the mainstream is one of the more powerful ways of thinking about the honor that there might be in, in humor or in comedy. Something that stood out for me recently is there's a there's a speech that he gives in New York to a very conservative org organization uh, in which he starts the speech by saying, let's abolish the police. Let's abolish the police and replace them with poets. Right? And it's the setup. It, there, there was a police reform controversy going on at the time. The mayor of the New York, governor of New York were in the audience, right? And so it's, it's the setup for a punchline where he suggests that he and uh, and W.D. Howells should become, you know, the head of this new police organization because it sounds like great, easy work for them. Uh, and that if they if they put poets in the role of police officers, then they will drive all of the sordid elements out of the cities through pure boredom. Right. And so it's set up for this kind of, you know, this this funny punch, you know, self-effacing punchline. But he still gets in front of all these powerful people. He gets to say, let us abolish the police. Right. And he puts that not only does he put it into this audience, but then it's reprinted in the paper the next day. Right? This is later in his career where everything he said becomes sort of front page news. And so he gets this, he's, he gets to kind of usher this idea into the ether that if, we, you know, as you and I know, he had very strong opinions about the, uh, the police going back to his days in San Francisco. Even though it's in the guise of self-effacing humor, 
he's able to sneak these very radical ideas into the mainstream. I certainly have some problems with the account of humor and whether humor actually works as a politics, but there are that for me, that's the, the argument for why it does. I I com- couldn't agree with you more. And that's a wonderful example of it, precisely the tactic I was I was talking about. And you've made me think, you know, think of today and all the late night comedians, the talk shows, and how they're all taking on politics from one point of view or another. So they're leveraging humor in order to make political points. And, and it's because we laugh that we can engage with the ideas. It cracks open some of the defenses where other modes simply wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this it's a natural transition into another question, which comes back to the motive for this round-the-world tour for Twain. Right, that he undertook this lecture tour, which became following the equator, for the purpose of raising money to repay his creditors after the bankruptcy of his publishing house and the failure of his investment, maybe more importantly, his the, fail, the failure of his investment in the page typesetter. And I don't think there's any disputing that he had money trouble throughout the 1890s. Uh, But you also make the point that his concern for selling books and satisfying his audience impacted what he felt comfortable saying and writing, particularly in Following the Equator. And I was hoping you'd explain that a little bit more, because Twain also has this reputation for courting and capitalizing on controversy, even inviting censorship. But... Just as we we just talked about the idea that he's able to usher sort of radical ideas into the ether by virtue of his celebrity, he also, you suggest, feels the need to suppress things in order to sustain his celebrity. And so I'm curious what you felt he needed to suppress in following the equator. I think any criticism of, over-criticism of the British Empire as such that that is the the really big issue for him there. After all, the British Empire were his hosts. As he moved from one country to another, he was being greeted by, at times housed by, certainly fed by, taken on tours by, and ultimately paid by, members, you know, of the empire, the various civil servants, uh, or in the case of a place like Australia, descendants of the invaders, right? All of whom feel fealty to England and to the empire itself. So on the one hand, it's a question of just being a good house guest. You know, you don't hurl accusations against your host, at least while you're in his house. But it was also because his audience were, on the one hand, Britons, 
because there is this British edition, which is fairly different, not hugely different, but fairly different from the American edition. And also the Americans who, and, and we have to remember at this point in the 18, late 1890s, and it was actually accelerated by the whole Philippines issue, having been traditional enemies since the Revolutionary War, Britain and the US were coming together. They were talking about being blood brothers. They were talking about being the Americans being successful descendants from the British. The British were talking to the Americans about what they could learn from the British civil service, which at that point was very highly developed, especially when the Americans started to invade other countries themselves and colonize them. So all of that was kind of the background for Twain's writing into, well, I took this trip in around the British Empire and this is what I saw. So he's very cautious. Mm-hmm. about it. And uh, one instance is, and I think this is a 19-2 letter to somebody, I'm not sure who, uh, the Boer War had just, the second Boer War had just erupted in South Africa. And it was the English against the Boers who were the descendants of Dutch settlers who had come 300 years earlier. The British were the culprits here. And Twain writes this to his friends. He said, we all know that blame is on the British side, but nobody's going to say this. And I think, you know, that's really good evidence that he knew, but he was not going to publicly criticize. Yeah. One of the most famous lines from Following the Equator is there are many humorous things in the world, among them the white man's notion that he is less savage than other savages. And this, uh, this false binary of civilization and savage was something Twain returned to repeatedly, not just in following the equator, but throughout his public life. As scholars like Swan Tzu and Todd Thompson have shown, he satires presumptions about Chinese immigrants and Pacific Islanders in these terms as early as the 1860s. And you show over and over again, Twain has this very complex complicated and inconsistent attitude towards people of color and especially indigenous cultures. He both constantly attacks the binary of civilization and savage, but also sometimes reproduces it. And so I was wondering, after all the research you've done, what you think he means by civilization and savage, right? What does it mean for Twain? What does it mean for us? Why does he think this binary is important to interrogate? Uh, That's a really complicated question. It has to do not just with Twain, but with the emerging science of what we call ethnography um, and how that developed. So let let me start there. So in the 19th century, and Twain was very involved with this, I think, um, what we now call ethnography, the study of human cultures, was emerging out of folklorists and other people, travel memoirs. Uh, It it was all sort of beginning to come together and get formalized. But it 
rested, as most sciences do, on existing ideas, which were, by our terms, extremely racist. So there was a triangle that was developed by ethnographers, anthropologists, of civilizations. So at the very top, there was, guess what, us, you know, plus the Egyptians and the ancient Chinese, God forbid, not the modern one, um, and then the descending order. And at the bottom were people like the Australian Aborigines. One thing that the hierarchy did or believed, assumed, was that evidence of material culture was evidence of a high level of civilization. So China, India in its heyday under the Mughals, modern day Europe and America, the Egyptian under the great pharaohs. These were great civilizations because they had what really amounts to stuff. They had buildings, they had fancy clothes, they had technologies, they, they had stuff, right? Whereas groups like Australian Aborigines, who were basically hunters and gatherers or farmers, same thing with American Indians, they were at the bottom because they didn't really care that much about stuff. So Twain walks through the British Empire with this as his background. And that is in many ways what he means when he talks about savages. So in Tasmania, throughout Australasia, actually, he will say, well, these people are savages. On the other hand, they had a right to their own land. But there's another, much more Twain-centered definition of savagery that I think is what skews our understanding of how he uses the term. I think for Twain, a civilized person was someone, or a civilized culture, had a code of honor. And you were civilized if you stuck to that code of honor. And if you betrayed it knowingly, you were savage. So savagery there has to do with the human moral or immoral impulse, among other things, to treat other people fairly. So if he says they were, what was the end of that quote? White man's notion that he is less savage than other savages. You know, strip off the veneer, this whole idea, oh, the British are going into India because they want to help the poor benighted Indians and help them to a better material life. Uh, the Americans are going to civilize and Christianize the Filipinos as if the Spanish for 300 years hadn't done that. Uh, that strip that away and you get the real savage who is acquisitive, cruel, and does not 
heed any of the moral strictures that he professes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that's if you have to play those two definitions back and forth as you train right. to understand what he actually means. There's a line from The Mysterious Stranger, dream other dreams and better. In your chapter on dreaming, which you call your most speculative chapter, you say that this scene and Twain's fixation upon dreaming is something which has long fascinated you and about which you found your perspective changing since you first wrote about it. And so I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that change, right? Well, as this, this book was a kind of self-reflection on your own career, what was it about the dream metaphors and the dualism that you talk about that you found altered by the time that you were writing this book? I mean, that is something that I have been dealing with since my dissertation. I had a chapter on the mysterious stranger, and I, I was kind of blown away by the sense of, of creative loneliness and alienation, because at the end of that chapter, what our character finds out is that he is, in fact, the only consciousness in the universe and that all realities are dreams and he's the dreamer. And the logical sequence of that is to realize that if cruelty exists, it originated in you, the dreamer. And that is, as the very last line says, appalling to realize that. So I think, you know, the, the whole thing about dreams goes through Twain's life. He was a dreamer and sleepwalker as a child. He records many vivid, vivid dreams. He was, some people, I, I have very boring dreams, but I have a cousin who dreams incredible dreams. I can never believe she didn't just compose them consciously. So he, he throughout his life became more and more convinced that he had an alternate reality. And that was the reality in his dreams, especially repeating dreams. And that shows up in a lot of his unfinished manuscripts in, from his life. So I want to backtrack now to in chapter one of the book, which is about pilgrimage and Hinduism. Twain and his wife, Livy, and Clara, their daughter, who was with them, uh, when they were in, I think it was Mumbai, they toured a Jain temple. And they were asking their guide, who was an Indian and who has written a book about this, uh, about Jain religion and what it was about and what they believed. And Twain was particularly interested in the idea of nirvana, which he took to mean the loss of all consciousness. And his guide said, no, that's not it. It is perfect consciousness. You know everything. You don't have that veil of subjective 
knowledge and the material that prevents us in waking life from understanding. Instead, you have perfect consciousness. And Twain, at that point, just says, oh, I was wrong. But I really think, and Dwayne Yutzi has also written about this very perceptively, I think that stayed with Twain. It's an example of what I was talking about before, about things that happened during this trip, staying with him and getting digested over the years. I think that stayed with him and in the Mysterious Stranger manuscript, or at least in this last chapter, he does this very Twainian twist on what the guide said. Perfect consciousness, but it ain't good. This is perfect consciousness of your creative ability to create worlds that over and over again are cruel and vicious and failures. Well, thank you, Susan. I want to remind people uh, that we've been speaking with Susan K. Harris about her book, Mark Twain, The World and Me, Following the Equator, Then and Now, uh, published by the University of Alabama Press uh, earlier this year and widely available wherever books are sold. Uh, we encourage you uh, to check it out. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation. I also highly recommend a book that Susan talked about briefly earlier, God's Arbiters, uh, which she published about 10 years ago. 20 uh, and I want to, again, uh, thank Susan, thank the Center for Mark Twain Studies, uh, and we hope you'll be back to join us on the American Vandal podcast.